It is time to go deeper in God's Word. It's time to engage in truth. Here is Dr. Steve Ford and Pastor John Bornsheen. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to Engage in Truth. This is John Bornsheen. I'm the senior pastor of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church right here in Colorado Springs. And I'm so excited that you're tuning in again. Here in the studio with me, Dr. Steve Ford. Dr. Ford, I'm so excited when you're in the studio, and we have a lot to cover today. So welcome back, my friend. Oh, thank you so much. You know, we just so enjoyed this time together, and I I hope uh, our, our listeners will be able to sense that. And the love and passion that we have for Scripture, for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I know for both of us, this is really one of the highlights of our week to be able to be here and share with each other and share with the listeners. And we have a lot of really important information to cover mm-hmm. today. Amen. Amen. We we are in what is a three-part series. At least that's our best intent to get through this in three parts. It really could be something we expand on for weeks to come. But what we've been talking about, and I'll set this up for our listener right now, if you missed last week... Again, you can go to calvaryfountain.com and listen to this, share it with your friends and family alike. You can pick up this whole series, take the whole three parts and send it out to everybody because we need to get this message out there. Last week, we started on the subject of God having a plan for Israel. And so we took you back through history and tried to give a, a greater picture then of what God has done through the nation of Israel and do all that in 25 minutes, which is quite remarkable, <laughs> but really trying to set up the, the scene here for where we're taking you. We want you to understand some of the very real prophecies that are forthcoming over the nation of Israel, that God has so much for us to bear witness of. And, and to be excited by, yes, there are some prophecies that are very difficult to understand and, and really to process through because the magnitude of them are just immense. They affect the whole world, especially when you go through the book of Revelation and you even take apart all of the 18 prophetic books for that matter. In fact, about a third of the Bible is oriented toward prophecy, and we can give several of these books the emphasis of prophecy, but it's really scattered throughout. I mean, you can go to Second Peter and find prophecy there. You'll find it in Jude. It's, it's all throughout the Word of God. Even Jesus Christ spoke of many prophecies that were right. uh, very uh, narrow in time frame, very uh, imminent, and then those that were f- far out, many distant years away, maybe even 2,000 plus years away from when he spoke them. So they would always give a prophecy that was close at hand and those that were further out to verify, to qualify the prophet. So we think about the magnitude of all of these prophecies that are throughout the Bible. We want to talk about that, especially next week, really diving into at least a hundred prophecies that are not yet fulfilled that all revolve around the nation of Israel. And that's what we see in the book of Revelation that, yes, there are prophetic statements of the impact in the Gentile world, but really the emphasis is all around Israel. And then Ezekiel breaks it down of even what it looks like during the millennial kingdom and very real things that must occur. So we started off last week talking about. Israel's history and why they're called the Jews today and God's plan uh, for all the tribes of Israel. We see those uh, delineated very clearly in the book of Revelation. And then we want to cover today a bit more about where this replacement theology came from, because that is really at the root of why we don't take the prophecies literal that they are going to happen, that there are very literal things that must occur in order to fully expand and show all of these 2,500 plus prophecies in the Bible that have very real outcomes to them. They're not allegorical. They're not 
some image, a poetic image that may look like this, but it's not really going to happen just like that. And Dr. Ford, I'm eager to hear your thoughts on that. And and so we're going to get through a little bit of that today, of this replacement theology and how we can refute that. And then next week, really spend more time on the specifics of some of these amazing prophecies that we may see come to pass even in our lifetime. And of course, as we come back as the bride of Christ with the Lord, as he comes to take his reign for his thousand year reign upon the earth before all things are made new thereafter and all the prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled during that time. So we've got a lot to cover in next week's program as well. But Dr. Ford, before the program, we were talking about this of how the Bible is really this amazing just a a work from beginning to end from Genesis chapter one, all the way to the end of the book of revelation, a complete thought over 40 writers use, but it's all the work of the Holy spirit, all God's words. They're inerrant, perfect, holy. It is sharper than a two edged sword. It gives us the map, the plan of God. We have everything we need through all 66 books of the Bible. And in it, there's about a third of this work dedicated to prophecy And there's an estimated 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. Listen to this. The predictive verses alone, there's about 8,362 predictive verses in the Bible. No other work on the face of the earth would even come close to something like that. Yes, there's eschatology in Islam, eschatology in some other faith groups, but nothing comes close to what the Bible has given. And the fact that we can go back through time and see that the Bible has never missed a single prophecy. In fact, as we examine some of this, what we find that there were 355 prophecies alone of Jesus's first coming. When you break all that down, the the sheer number, if you multiply it by like to the hundredth power, you don't even come close. I mean, we're talking numbers that are so large, I can't even say what the number is because it's beyond trillions and trillions and trillions of an astronomical value that's given to this, that even five or six of those would come to pass as described. But 355 just of Jesus's first coming, 1,845 declarations of Christ's rule on the earth throughout the Old Testament. And then we see another 1,817 predictions on 737 separate matters throughout Scripture. And, and there are 318 references to the second coming of Christ through the 23 of the 27 New Testament books. But it even gets bigger than that. In fact, when we break down all of the prophecies of the New Testament, we find that there are seven to eight different prophecies throughout the entirety of the New Testament for every one that was given of Jesus's first coming that are given toward his second coming. So it's an amazing compilation here that we see that there's still about four to 500 prophecies that are yet to be fulfilled, all revolving around this final week of Daniel chapter 11. And we see this whole breakdown of uh, where we, we look at from Daniel chapter 9 to 11, and we see this scripture unfold before our eyes and the, the timeline, the sequence of events that are given there, and everything that must unfold in the end of days. So it's quite fantastic, really, when you when you examine this. But Dr. Ford, from your perspective, what we were trying to get at it before the program was the fact, how did we get to a point where when we look at the end of days, there are folks who have this amillennial view this uh, this view of the end of days that is if we're already living in the millennium, 
that all of it was just simply this allegorical perspective. It was all sort of a, a vision of things to come, all poetic, very allegorical, nothing really set in stone. It's really not going to happen that way. In fact, many who hold to an amillennial view believe that most of it was all completed by 70 AD right. at the destruction of Jerusalem. And then all we're waiting now is for the return of the king. And all the rest of it all happened during the persecution of Christians, perhaps during the, the 10 emperors that would uh, create great hostility towards Christians, especially we see with Nero amongst many others. And so it, now we're just really waiting for the return of the king. And, and this final week that has been prophesied of the seven years of the tribulation period is not really going to happen. It's not really that. It's not. There's not really a midpoint at which the Antichrist will come and desecrate a temple that's been rebuilt. And, and all of these things are just simply allegorical. And I think that's where we're trying to put our finger on this. How did all of that happen? Where did we get that? <laughs> we because we don't see around? any of that throughout the rest of Scripture, right? <laughs> prophecies always had very real, tangible outcomes. Yeah. And so it has, you know, even all those prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. And then we see, uh, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, because as Jesus said, you know, you did not recognize the time of your visitation. We, we know that the nation of Israel is the apple of God's eye. We never see Israel stop being the apple of God's eye. But yeah, I don't really understand. And, you know, where there is this point where Jesus fulfills all of these prophecies, uh, and yet suddenly at some point, prophecies from that, whatever that point is, on, uh, maybe after the death of Jesus or after 70 AD, all the prophecies become allegorical. And also in defiance of what we have seen in the recent past. Of course, we see Israel becoming a nation in a day in 1948 fulfillment of prophecy. And we are seeing arguably even now fulfillment of prophecy with technologies like artificial intelligence uh, and and the ability to have a live talking statue as we see in, Mm -hmm. you know, during the seven years of tribulation, as we see in the book of revelation or having a one world currency or, and actually practical at this time where that, that can actually happen. I mean, we have the technology now, Mm -hmm. um, you know, so we're seeing all of these things uh, becoming possibilities before our very eyes, or when we have the two witnesses being seen by the entire world, Yes, how was that possible until the recent past? Right. So even now we are, we are seeing the fulfillment of prophecies that are not allegorical, but some that have come into fruition in the recent past, even before our lifetime, and some that we see possibly coming into fruition even now. That's right. In the uh, some of the prophecies that I was just alluding to earlier, Daniel chapter 9, even, and I mentioned all the way through chapter 11. Uh, Daniel 11 is a fantastic study, but Daniel chapter 9 really gives us these breakdown of, of the first coming of Jesus and the second coming. It's broken down by this, this mystery of weeks that are given there. And when you take the first part of that, when you break it out from Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, you get not only an exact countdown all the way to when Jesus came in a triumphal entry into Jerusalem exactly to that day, we also get a breakdown of this final week that we believe is, as we interpret this, is a seven-year period of time, a future date forthcoming in which uh, the world will go through turmoil that at the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus broke that down, will be a time unlike any other time in history. And and we do see the technologies that are advancing that that make some of that quite possible right now. Uh, So I I think, Dr. Ford, as we go through this, what we're hoping that you, our listener, will pick up on this is that we have to dispel some of the error that has crept into our doctrine 
that somehow the things that are forthcoming, meta tauta by way of the book of Revelation and Daniel and all these 18 prophetic books that all point to the second coming of Jesus and the sequence of events that must unfold before that happens cannot be allegorical. They cannot simply be this poetic description of things going on in the heavenlies, but not actually having a a physical, tangible outcome on the earth, because that's not how the Bible has given us prophecy. The, The prophecies were always very tangible, very real, direct outcomes. This nation will do this. And then you look through the history books, especially you see in Daniel chapter 11, and you see that those things actually happened exactly as he said would happen. That's right. That nation came against this nation, and then oh, they, they went and got to you know uh, recruits and uh, rearmed and came back, and they did it again, and everything specifically outlined as we'd expect the Bible to do. So there's a danger in an allegorical perspective, uh, a millennial view, because then it leaves everything to the interpretations of men, and then you cannot hold man's. Uh, perspectives of these accountable to the word of God. You have to have a healthy dispensation that just as these prophecies were literal and tangible, historically verified, the science supports it as it was, will be just as it was literal for Egypt and Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be for the entire world. Those were just precursors to what was going to happen in a future time. What happened with Antiochus and how he desecrated the temple right. of old will happen again with the Antichrist. So again, the Lord pulls out the fact, especially with Daniel and two citations in Matthew and Mark, that this was a prophetic vision. It was given so that we would know the truth, knowing how to hold these things accountable and told to us well in advance so that we know how to live in the present. And so, uh, Dr. Ford, I'm going to get right into this because our time is already getting away from us. Uh, when we really examine, and I'll try to go through this fairly quickly, when we look at how we got to this amillennial view, it all breaks down of our church doctrine. Our church doctrine got skewed in many ways, and it started to introduce this idea of replacement theology. And reduced to its simplest form, it teaches that the church then teaches in some churches, not all, and certainly not ours at Calvary Fellowship, teach that Israel was replaced in God's plan. Some theologians uh, the uh, we'll use even a terminology called supersessionism, and then what that means is that the church somehow superseded Israel, and its proponents teach that God has set aside Israel and made the church the new Israel, the new and improved people of God, if you will. And there are many variations within that broad spectrum of replacement theology. But two of the main approaches to this is that Israel's role as the people of God was completed somehow. It says that once the Messiah came 2,000 years ago, Israel's mission was completed. And then secondly, that Israel's place as the people of God was forfeited somehow. A divine judgment, perhaps, on the rejection of the Messiah in the first century. To which you and I kind of laughed a little bit about this, that if somehow God's keeping his covenant was uh, relegated, uh, predicated on this idea that somehow we would fulfill (laughs) our end of the agreement, then all of us would have been replaced. I mean, all of us would be rejected. There would be no finality to this and the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and what he does through very broken people who never seem to keep their promises, right? He always keeps his end. We always fail in ours. So praise be to God that... Our salvation is not dependent on us and on our own ability to save ourselves. It's holy in Jesus Christ, redeeming both Israel and the Gentile church. So we praise God for that. Martin Luther 
articulated some this position, although we have great respect for Martin Luther and what he did in 95 Theses and so forth and his role in the Reformation, which was vital. But unfortunately, as all men do, there's a side of us that's very broken, even though God can use very broken people to do amazing things. But Martin Luther articulated this replacement position when he said these particular words, for such ruthless wrath of God is sufficient evidence that they, i.e. the Jewish people, assuredly have erred and gone astray. Even a child can comprehend this, for one dare not regard God as so cruel that he would punish his own people so long, so terrible, so unmercifully. Therefore, this work of wrath is proof that the Jews, surely rejected by God, are no longer his people, and neither is he any longer their God. Oh, wow, what heresy. Right. I mean, so on, <laughs> he wrote this on the Jews and their lies, and he wrote that in 1543. Uh, Bruce Waltke, one defender of replacement theology, adds the Jewish nation no longer has a place as a special people of God. That place has been taken by the Christian community, which fulfills God's purpose for Israel. Again, that's the summarization of this supersessionism. Uh, one particular theological seminary in Pennsylvania said the issue is whether na- national Israel as an administrative structure is still in the plan of God. Now, all of this really came from this this heresy, if you will, this idea of replacing Israel, which then overrides and destroys hundreds of prophecies with literal outcomes, uh, very tangible outcomes that must come to pass. And if those don't come to pass, the whole Bible self-destructs because then it's found to be with error. That means God was a liar, and then the whole universe crashes and burns around it. So this this is absolutely something we have to refute. So this replacement theology is closely associated with Reformed theology, i.e. going back to John Calvin, who passed 1564. And they it started to turn what closely became this amillennial eschatological view. So this eschatology started to become more spiritualized rather than literal historical in its approach. Uh, so it became very much a, a, an image that was to be conveyed. And so replacement theology weighs so heavily on non-literal allegorical interpretation to define these things that it leaves way too much to human interpretation and gives us no tangible things. So that's why we at Calvary churches hold to a dispensational premillennial view, because we hold to the fact that these are literal outcomes. I mean, honestly, if we look to what's forthcoming in Revelation chapter 21, verse 12, there are 12 gates of the New Jerusalem that have all of the names of the tribes of Israel on them. When you go through Ezekiel chapter 40 to 48, you see that God holds to all of his promises to restore the nation of Israel and even give them their lands back. He has a wonderful promises. We'll go through all of that later. But even Jonathan Edwards refuted some of the things that John, that John Calvin held to so firmly in these areas. And we can go all the way back through our own theology, even going back to 160 AD when replacement theology was introduced by Martian. And he carried this theological idea that uh, this crusade, if you will, to purge the church for what he believed were Jewish errors and influences, even Irenaeus in 180 AD. And for instance, he wrote that the Jews have rejected the Son of God and cast him out of the vineyard when they slew him. Therefore, God had justly rejected them and has given to the Gentiles outside the vineyard the fruits of this cultivation. So, Uh, You know, again, this has gone all the way back, and I believe ever since God made covenant with Israel, ever since he made covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, this this persecution has carried forth ever since to try to refute what God has done 
with the nation of Israel and continues to do. And again, the reason why we're going through this is because in order for us to understand the prophecies we're going to be reading about next week that are still forthcoming over the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, the capital of Jerusalem, you have to have a historical literal approach to this. Otherwise, you're going to miss it all. And, and, and these details matter, and they matter to all of us, especially in our faith. Um, I, I think, Dr. Ford, I want to spend a little time now just talking a little bit about Romans chapter 11, because it's in Romans chapter 11 where we find how we can refute supersessionism, because God has a plan for Israel. Let me just pull out a few of these, starting in verses 1 to 2 of Romans chapter 11. He says then, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Skipping down to verse 11 to 12. I say then, have they Israel stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Verse 15. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? You know, again, you you see that there, you just go back and read all of Romans chapter 11, and we see that there's the intent there, it's clearly outlined, to restore all of the broken branches of which the Gentile church is grafted into, not to cast them away, but to fully restore them. And in their restoration, we can understand Ezekiel 37 of the dry bones coming back to life, the people being restored to the land. And ultimately, that is the, the demonstration of God's faithfulness, even to a people all of us, quite frankly, not just the Jews who would often walk away from their first love God. He would bless them. They would walk away from him. They'd give themselves back to the ways of the world. And we'd go through this cyclical behavior, the ebbs and flows, peaks and valleys, just like we in the Gentile church go through. And praise be to God that he is in the restoration business and he keeps holding to his promises. So we see that the tribes are restored. Ezekiel 48, go back to that because we see that that's going to be outlined Throughout the promises that we have to give next week, we're going to really spend about a, uh, the entire program, I think, on those hundred plus prophecies, at least about the fulfillment of what God has for the nation of Israel and the people of Israel. But I, I want to just, in, in our final minutes here, Dr. Ford, at least highlight the fact that we have gotten away from what was considered to be true doctrine in this matter. It's gotten skewed by men. I believe that Augustine is somewhat to blame in that because he had written a 22-volume defense of theological views in his work titled City of God. And in that, he starts to lean toward this amillennial view in books 15 to 19. But that is not what the early church believed. In fact, What we see of Papias, who was a prominent church patriarch who was martyred in the second century AD, he believed in a future earthly kingdom and the full restoration of Israel. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the apostle John, who actually penned the book of Revelation. So how would it be that just two disciples later, they 
would still be holding to this view that there was a a predetermined outcome, a, a, a dispensational view that there were literal prophecies, restoration of Israel, and, and that God was going to keep to all of these promises and not break a single one of them. That was only two disciples away from the Apostle John who penned the book of Revelation. And then suddenly we see Augustine come on the scene, and then this amillennial view is introduced. Suddenly replacement the- theology comes about later, and then we start to break down all of the dispensation of the end of days, losing our moorings and forgetting that God has a very real plan for Israel as he has for the nation of uh, the the peoples, the Gentile peoples who make up his church. And so we just praise God that that the truth is being revealed, especially for such a time as this. I, I believe that these powerful words of Romans chapter 11 are very fitting, verses 26 to 27. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God is not finished with the Gentiles. He is not finished with the nation of Israel. And this full culmination of it all is beautiful. And when we see Israel receive their Messiah, turn to him in praise and worship, he has a plan for them in his thousand year reign as he does for all of the church. And so next week, Dr. Ford, we're going to get into this. And I know you're chomping at the bit to get into that <laughs> as well, because time just gets away from it us. Does. We have so much this to cover next week. So any final thoughts for us today? No, not really, except for the fact that, you know, we love our brothers and sisters who hold the replacement theology and then mm. the sense of unity. We do love them, but proper exegesis is so important in regards to our respect for God and for his holiness. Amen. And we need to make sure we don't vary to the left or to the right, but stay on that straight and narrow path. That's right. Amen. And so I want to thank you for listening today to Engage in Truth. Time just gets away from us so quickly. So go back and listen to this and the prior broadcasts at calvaryfountain.com. This is a ministry of Calvary Fellowship Fountain Valley Church. We are a Calvary chapel in the south end of Colorado Springs. We'd love to worship with you. Services are 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. on Sundays. We'd love to see you there. God bless you, my friends. Take care.